The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Mike Mitchell, and this morning's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason or by sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thanks for that, Mike. Uh, Welcome, everyone. Uh, Welcome back from your your fall break, those of you who are away on break, and uh, good to be with you. I won't make any commentary on uh, football from yesterday because I know some of you are probably in recovery, maybe hung over from, from winning or from losing. And so uh, as a pastor, I'm not permitted to publicly take sides in any of those rivalries. So uh, I just hope you're well today. So uh, early on in my faith, uh, this was uh, right after I became a Christian, it was uh, you know, around my you know early twenties, um, I was all in. Uh, I I had this newfound faith and this committed zeal to that faith, and I became you know overnight uh, a voracious Bible reader, a committed churchgoer, uh, an evangelist, where I would tell people about Christ whether they wanted to hear it or not, and uh, my zeal. Uh, was also what Scripture calls a zeal that was not according to knowledge, a misguided zeal, an overly zealous one in certain ways. Uh, I was so eager to be so super committed uh, in my newfound faith that I took every compact disc, and by the way, a compact disc, if you're under the age of 30, that was this round thing that had music on it, and you'd put it in a little machine, and the machine would play the music, um, there was no streaming, but I, I mean, I had all the great ones, you know, the, you know, Led Zeppelin, U2, um, you know, I think I even had a Hanson record. Um, I had, I had, um, you know, Pearl Jam and Nirvana, all the, I just threw it all away. Because it wasn't explicitly Christian, then of course it wasn't, it couldn't be Christian at all and therefore needed to get rid of it all. Uh, and uh, and then I you know became a uh, a a uh, what you call a hellfire evangelist where I was really really bold and really really in people's face about 
you know, how important and essential it was for them to come to faith and to do it right now, this very minute. And uh, I was given what you could call the spiritual gift of alienation, uh, where I actually felt for a season that to have fewer friends was a sign of faithfulness. To drive people off from faith was somehow a sign of faithfulness. I missed some things, clearly. You know, Martin Luther's confession obsession was also part of my reality, where I was always looking for things to confess at all times. And one such instance was after a church talent show, the church that I was part of in Atlanta. We had a talent show, and I have a superpower, and that is that I am able to imitate a cat choking up a hairball better than anybody. And, and I did it. I brought my epic, you know, cat choking up a hairball moment. And the whole church went roaring in laughter and, 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 you know, just thundered with approval. And, and I felt guilty about that. Um, I felt guilty because um, are you supposed to have that much fun in church? Uh, shouldn't there be more reverence and restraint? And have I have I somehow mocked one of God's beautiful creatures by imitating that creature choking up a hairball? And so, as you can see, I was, I was a bit tortured and, and could have benefited from a deeper knowledge of books like Colossians, which talks about more freedom, better boundaries, and also a better fundamentalism. And I'm going to ask you to hold on with me and don't don't check out on me because of the use of that word. I want to recover that word rather than uh, embrace it as we understand it. But, but let's, let's talk about those three things together. More freedom, better boundaries, better fundamentalism. So more freedom. My, my error early on, and it's still my error in a lot of ways, is to become more strict than the Bible itself. Um, it's very important to notice words when you're reading any text of Scripture, and, and the very first word of this text today is the word therefore. And whenever you read the word therefore, you should look at what came right before it. And what came right before this therefore is words like this. See to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition or human rules, or cultural guidelines and expectations that the Bible itself, and therefore that God Himself, does not impose on anyone. So you could say that I had fallen into, very early in my faith, what you could call the traditionalist error. And the traditionalist error is when you add layers of of new laws and rules and regulations around what the Bible itself has given us. You add layers. Uh, It's as silly as, uh, say, on a cold winter day, and in Nashville that would mean it's, you know, 26 degrees. Okay, so that's pretty cold. And all you need in Nashville to be comfortable in the cold is one winter coat. But let's say you were a zealot about not being cold, and you said, I'm going to wear one winter coat, but then I'm going to put one more layer on. I'm going to put another winter coat on top of that winter coat. You're just exchanging one type of misery, being freezing, for another type of misery, being way too hot, feeling like you're in an oven, right? You don't need that extra layer 
All you need is the one. It's a metaphor for adding to what God has already given us. This is something that especially the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the Jewish leaders in the Old Testament era and the New Testament era, would do. They took the Ten Commandments because they were serious. Now, there's a positive. There's a real enthusiasm about their faith, but but it was a zeal without knowledge. And so they took the Ten Commandments, and they said, let's turn those ten into 613 rules. Okay, and, and they came up with this body of teaching called the Mishnah. And with each of the Ten Commandments, they added a bunch of other rules to, to add layers to it. For example, the Fourth Commandment, the Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy, just like you're doing. I mean, you should be committed. You're here on fall break. You're here after a huge football day. You're here on a day that the Titans play at noon. You're the super committed people, Right? I laughed a little bit when Nate said, I look forward to listening to the sermon a second time. You don't have to do that, right? You don't have to do that. And he wouldn't listen to it for the reasons that, that, that the, the ancient scribes and Pharisees added laws to the laws. But the Sabbath command, that one command, which is for our rest and replenishment, they added 39 restrictions to it. 39 including on, on the Sabbath, don't write. So you want to write a letter to somebody? Wait till another day. Don't cook. Don't wash anything. Don't plant anything. And that includes not spitting, because if you spit, it might land in the soil and germinate an unknown seed, and the seed w- would sprout into something, and that would be work. And therefore, that would be sin. That's how rigid it became. So we have our own version of, of this, these extra layers. For example, the Bible says, don't get drunk with wine. But the traditionalists will take that an extra step and say, well, don't ever take a sip of alcohol at all. But that can be problematic. Now, that's not problematic if you're an alcoholic and you have an addiction problem and you've got a history and those sorts of things. You, you've got to Create your own unique barriers, right? But, but there's no judgment on you for that, right? And you can't pass judgment on people who sip alcohol because you don't, right? This isn't about whether or not you, you drink something. This is about whether or not you judge somebody or you allow somebody to judge you. Okay, because the Bible says don't get drunk, but, but when the traditionalist then says, well, then I'm not going to have any alcohol, period, um, we're on a collision course with John chapter 2, which is Jesus' very first public miracle where he turned a bunch of water into a bunch of wine. And, and, and some people will say, well, that, that couldn't have been alcoholic wine. That had to have been grape juice, etc. And, and then why on earth then would Paul say in Ephesians, don't get drunk with it if, if you can't get drunk with it? You see what I'm saying? We, 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 I don't know why we want to be more strict and more rigid than the script. Like, who wants to be rigid? Maybe it's a control thing. I don't know. But the other thing the Bible says is be in the world. Be in the world. Salt and light, city on a hill, but not of the world. But what the traditionalist will say is, uh, well, it says don't be of the world, so let's create an alternative world where we only do Christian things and we, we only hang around Christian people 
and, and you know, we only listen to Christian music and read Christian books and, and watch Christian TV and have Christian friends and eat Christian chicken. So, serious though, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about how Christians are the salt of the earth. Now, what's the purpose of salt? The salt is to be a minority ingredient on a plate full of stuff. And, and you're just supposed to sprinkle a little bit on all the stuff. And, and what the salt does when you do that is it brings out the very best in everything around it. That's a metaphor for, for Christians and the places where they live, work, and play. You're meant to bring out the best. Of, 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 you're, you're meant to leave it better than you found it. Okay, but what happens when you take the salt off of, of everything else on the plate, everything else becomes more bland, less interesting, but then you sequester it as a side dish and you eat it by itself, well, it's bitter tasting and it makes your blood pressure go up. And that, 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 there's no better description than that for a moralistic, grumpy Christian who's more rule-bound than they are freedom-bound. It'll make your blood pressure go up. They're sour tasting. The Bible says worship the Lord and serve Him with reverence. But the traditionalists will say, well, that means you, you need to always and only be formal and serious when you're in the presence of God. And there's nothing wrong with formality. There's nothing wrong with, with being serious, serious at the appropriate time and in the appropriate ways. But you guys, there's one reason why we don't bring out our wedding photos because in our wedding photos, my, my wife is smiling and I've got this serious look on my face, this austere look on my face, because at that particular time in my life, I felt like it's inappropriate to express joy in church and, and, and to imitate a, a, a cat choking up a hairball in, in, you know, among the people of God. And so I had this austere, sort of serious vibe. Instead of this, you know, interplay between reverence and joy and reverence as joy and joy as reverence. So back to the cat and the hairball. So, so thankfully, there was an older mentor in the church, and I, I went to him and I said, yeah, I kind of feel guilty about, you know, getting all that laughter from people for making fun of one of God's creatures in that way. And he said, look, let, let's talk about Galatians, where it says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So you need to be free from this. Let's talk about Abraham and Sarah, who were so overjoyed at, at the child that they had that they named him Isaac, and that, that's a name that means laughter. Let's talk about the Psalms and talk about rejoicing in the Lord always. Let's talk about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross so that he could have us. You know, the Gospels are so full of joy. And let's talk about passing judgment on others. And let's talk, in, talk about passing judgment even on ourselves. Like here, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Then it says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. So, so that's an important word here. We don't really use it much anymore, but it means this. Rigorous self-denial combined with extreme abstinence, austerity, and seriousness. That's asceticism. Sounds like the life of the party, right? You know, verse 20 goes on to say, why do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have an appearance of wisdom in promising self-made religion, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You're adding laws 
to what the lawgiver, the designer, your maker has given. It, it, you know, it's, it's like you know, mixing, I don't know, pancake syrup with gasoline, thinking that's going to make your car run better. It's going to corrupt the whole thing. It's going to ruin the engine. This moralistic spirit. You know, this is, this is how sin began, you guys. Eve, in, the, the, the first step towards subtracting from the law of God in her life was adding to it. You know, the serpent tempts her and, and says, and says um, has God really said that you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Has, is he that limiting? Has he really said, has God really said that? And Eve said, yes, he did. He said, you shall not eat it, and you shall not touch it. But he never said, you shall not touch it. The first step toward a diminished view of the law of God, where she actually disobeyed the real law of God, was adding to it, was setting herself up to believe that God was more rigid than he actually is. It's the moralistic spirit. Let no one pass judgment. And that means don't you pass judgment either. Okay, same church. Remember, I'm, I'm a brand new Christian, so you've got to give me some grace. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm really zealous. And what really threw me off was another Sunday where I'm, I'm heading into church and a deacon is smoking a cigarette. A deacon smoking in the parking lot. And, and of course, I did what any Christian, good Christian would do, and I went and gossiped about it. And I reached out to this same guy that, that comforted me about the, the cat and the hairball thing, told me it was okay. And I said, hey, there's a deacon out in the parking lot smoking, and doesn't the Bible say your, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, and, and you know, you're supposed to honor God with your body? And, and this older mentor said, well, what'd you have for dinner last night, Scott? And I said, well, pizza. He said, how many slices did you have? And I said, all of them. And it was a large pizza. Ate the whole thing. And then I'm like, oh, okay. Um, So I got a little slide to share with you all in light of that. God bless this 8,000 calorie sweating cheeseburger to the nourishment of my body. Amen. Some guy in the back. You understand the point here, right? I mean, the Bible, the Old Testament people of God, just to remind them that He's a God of festivity and a a God of robust joy, said, I want you to have seven feasts every single year, and they will define your calendar. I want you to feast your hearts out. I want you to delight yourself in the richest of food. And then he gave us in the New Testament an eighth feast, which is the feast above all feasts, the Lord's Supper, which we receive every week, which points to the future feast, which we haven't participated in yet, the, the grand wedding feast of the Lamb, where there will be more calories than you ever dreamed of, and you will be more fit walking away from it than you've ever imagined being fit, walking away from a feast. You know, because of these realities, Christians at a restaurant should be making the most noise, having the most laughter, being the most distracting 
group of people, being, being the table that the server says, why are you all so loud? Or is it somebody's birthday? No, it's nobody's birthday. Well, is there some special occasion? Well, no, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. We're just a bunch of people anticipating uh, Jesus making all things new and ushering in the new heaven and the new earth and the wedding feast of the Lamb and, the, you know, this chicken or this fish or this, you know, pasta. This all just points to, to something greater, and, 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 and we're just imagining that future into our present moment, and, and, and it's robust, and it's communal, and it's life-giving, and isn't it so wonderful? You know, like Josiah said, isn't it great to be circumcised with a circumcision without hands? You know, last week, right? Did you imagine saying that to your server? Don't do that. <clears throat> but there's something about eating and drinking that is deeply Christian. And if we, if, if we, don't, if we don't have that experience of, of, of robust feasting, we're actually missing out on a sign of that which is to come and that which is, and that which has been. You know, back to the smoking. So if we're going to go after the deacon in the parking lot, you know, we also have to go after Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, J. Gresham Machen, Billy Graham, R.C. Sproul, Chuck Colson, Jerry Falwell, and David Filson. We have to go after all of them because all of them smokers on some level. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Or like my friend Grant says every now and then, everything is meant to be enjoyed in moderation, including excess. Let that sink in a little bit. More freedom, better boundaries. There are two extremes that the Scriptures present to us, being more strict than Scripture and being more lenient than Scripture. You know, Martin Luther illustrated these two possibilities with his metaphor of a drunk man riding on a horse. He's always susceptible uh, of falling off to the traditionalist right or falling off to the individualist left of the horse and hurting himself. The idea is to stay on the horse. And so we've talked about the traditionalist or moralist spirit and the peril of that. How about the individualist? That's the person who says, truth comes from within. I am not answerable to any truth outside of myself. The only truth that I am answerable to is the truth that comes out of my own heart, my own brain, my own feelings, my own sensibilities. And I give myself the right to change at any time what those things might be. Problem is, when my truth is on a collision course with your truth, we get chaos and antagonism and character assassination and outrage and all the rest. It's what the sociologist Robert Bella called expressive individualism. Another brilliant thinker, Charles Taylor, talked about expressive individualism this way. He said, it's the belief that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation 
or political or religious authority. In summary, expressive individualism reverses uh, the cosmic order of things where self is now the sun around which everything orbits. And then neighbor is supposed to orbit around me and God is supposed to orbit around me as opposed to the opposite where God's in the center and then neighbor and then us and, and, and our purpose is to revolve around the service of both. It's to put self at the center And when I do that, the truth is replaced with my truth. And I am a human being created in the image of God whose chief end is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. I am is traded for I identify as whatever my feelings tell me that I am and whatever my feelings insist that you also agree that I am. My sister-in-law shared with us a couple years ago a, a moment she had with her, um, her then 13-year-old. He's 16 now. And um, she said, the truth is, son, that you are to honor your mother and father, which is the first command with a promise. And therefore, I want you to honor me by finally cleaning your room because it's a pigsty. And he looks back at his mom and he says, not going to do it. And she says, excuse me? And, and he says, I identify as a boy without hands. And so I cannot and will not clean my room. Now, he was, he's a clever kid. And this was his way of making fun of the ridiculousness of the spirit of the age in which we are. Where if I tell you that I'm a donkey, you have to say that I'm a donkey. Or if I tell you that I'm a superhero, you've got to say that I'm a superhero as opposed to being the person that I am. The book of Judges summarizes the chaos in this way. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a recipe for chaos. We think it's a recipe for for freedom. It's a recipe for chaos because my truth is always going to be on a collision course with somebody else's. And so is yours. There has to be the truth. All of Colossians is about this. It's both pushing for the truth of God's freedom and pushing for the truth of God's boundaries uh, in which that freedom uh, is meant to be exercised and lived out simultaneously. And and it's summarized in, in verse 20. With Christ you died. With Christ you died. To what? Laws of traditionalism, laws of culturalism, and being a law unto myself. There are two kinds of toxic fundamentalisms. One that says, if you don't abide by our rules, if you don't wear two or three layers of added coats around the one coat that will make you whole, then we're going to ostracize you, we're going to push you out, we're going to judge and punish you. But then there's the the progressive liberal, liberal version of that that says, Oh, there is an unpardonable sin, and that is to suggest that there's such a thing as sin. And you will be punished if you commit that unpardonable sin. Two extremes. And Christ isn't in the middle of the two extremes averaging them out. He transcends and is above all of these extremes. 
he goes on, you were alive to the world, but now you are alive to Christ. So stop indulgence of the flesh by adding all of these new laws and added philosophies to Christ himself. What Christ said is this, if anyone loves me, that person will obey my commands. Not all commands, but my commands. And they will obey. If I want to live in freedom, I have to become a better fundamentalist. What do you mean better? Fundamentalism is bad. Everybody's a fundamentalist, you guys. Everybody has fundamentals around which they organize their lives and with which they judge other people. And your fundamentalism can be hyper-conservative. It can be hyper-progressive, someplace in between. But you have some fundamentals. You have some non-negotiables. And what the Scripture is simply doing is calling us to healthy, life-giving, good-hearted, non-negotiables, and fundamentals. Better fundamentals. Not no fundamentals. Better fundamentalists. Better, better fundamentals. So Kathy Keller, this is a very funny anecdote about Kathy. You know, somebody was, was coming down on, on fundamentalism. Fundamentalists are bad. They're, they're, they're the problem with the world. And, and she's like, you realize you're being a fundamentalist by saying that. She says, the question isn't whether or not fundamentalism is good or bad. The question is, what are your fundamentals? I, for one, she said, have never met an Amish terrorist. Have you? It's because of their fundamentals. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, a God who died on the cross for them. If your fundamentals are oriented around the Ten Commandments, for example, this is the kind of person it will make you. You will be more content, worshipful, hardworking. You will invite rest for other people. You will be nonviolent. You will be sexually chaste. You will be generous, truthful. You will not be a gossip. If your fundamentals are oriented around what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, you will be humble, kind, forgiving, peaceful, pure, resilient, prayerful, a good neighbor and friend, even to those who treat you as an enemy. You'll be patient, content, generous, self-controlled, not anxious, not judgmental, thankful, other-oriented. You're going to be the kind of person everybody wants to be a friend with, everybody wants to live with. You'll be the kind of person everybody wants to be. If you are a zealous fundamentalist for the things of Christ, for the things of Christ, he's calling us to better fundamentalism. Bad fundamentalism is ego-centered. Christian fundamentalism, gospel fundamentalism is Christ and gospel and grace and love-centered. It says in verse 17, the substance, the fundamentals belong to Christ. So whatever comes from Christ, orient your life, your heart, your belief, your speech around that. And it's the first step to becoming the very person that you want to be with and the very person that you want to be. And what does Jonah say? The secret is what you cling to. He says, those who cling to worthless things forfeit the grace that could be theirs. They miss an opportunity. They pay an opportunity cost by clinging to the wrong things. Traditionalist things, individualist things, maybe both and. The alternative is to cling to Christ. This phrase here, and I'll I'll unpack it more next week, with 
Christ, with Christ, clinging to Christ. So, so if I'm out doing yard work and I'm sweating and I'm getting dirt and pollen all over me, sometimes I'll walk in the house and I'll, I'll say, hey, Patty, you want a hug? And, and she'll be like, no, no. Why? Because nobody wants sweat and dirt and pollen all over them, especially if they've already showered and gotten ready for the day and all of that. But here's the difference. If we come to Christ with all the contaminants, with all the body odor and everything else that we carry, and we say, Lord, how about a hug? He says, oh, I, I've been waiting for you to ask. And, and he leans in. But the difference is, you know, our dirt and our sweat and our body odor does not transfer to him. His cleanness transfers to us. That embrace doesn't make him dirty. That embrace makes us clean with Christ is step one to becoming like Christ. And there's no better, better way to be with him than to eat after him, to drink after him, and to take in his body and his blood that we might be strengthened in these things. So let's turn our attention to that now and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for um, the opportunity and the occasion that all of us have at any given time to be with Jesus, to fall into his embrace, to love him in response to being loved by him, which then, Lord, remarkably makes us better for our neighbors and better for the world uh, in which you've placed us. Take these elements, these ordinary things, the bread and the cup, and turn them into extraordinary things as they remind us that you are not just Christ around us or Christ with us. You are also Christ within us. For this we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.